Section 2 of An Interpretation of Keats' Endymion by Henry Clement Notcutt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2 The Story In the second book we are taken down into a region away from all the stir and movement of human life. Endymion, wandering in the forest, is still in a restless and dissatisfied mood notwithstanding his promise to Peona, when his fancy is caught by a bud from which emerges a golden butterfly. Line 61. He follows it, and is led to the mouth of a cavern, where a nymph, rising from a fountain, warns him that he has yet far to go before he can attain to what he is striving after. Line 123. In response to a voice calling to him from the cavern, he makes his way down, and finds himself in a strange, though beautiful, region, from which all sign of human life has passed away. In the course of his wanderings he comes upon a temple with many ramifications. Line 257. He is led into a chamber, where he sees Adonis sleeping, and while he is there, Venus comes and carries Adonis away. Line 581. He passes some magic fountains, and is delighted with the changing shapes that they assume. Line 606. He has a vision of Sibylle. Line 640. And then, the path failing him, he is carried by an eagle to a quiet bower. Line 670. Where his long pursuit is rewarded by a fuller revelation of his heavenly love than has yet been granted to him. After she has left him, he sees the pursuit of Arethusa by Alpheus, line 936, and sympathizes with their pains, and suddenly he finds himself moving in the depths of the ocean. Our study of the first book has led us to the conclusion that in the story of the strange experiences through which Endymion passed, there is pictured the gradual awakening of Keats to the possibility that he might hope to achieve fame as a poet, and the black despondency that settled down upon him in the long periods of waiting between the somewhat rare occasions when his hopes shone brightly. In the second book, the story is continued. The hope once awakened in him could not be crushed by fears or hesitations, even though these might prevail for a time, and there is now set before us in picturesque form, the process of training that had to be undergone in order that the poet might be made fit for the realisation of his ideal. So Sidney Colvin has admirably described the way in which the mind of Keats naturally worked. When he conceives, or wishes to express general ideas, his only way of doing so is by calling up from the multitudes of concrete images with which his memory and imagination are haunted such as strike him as fitted, by their colour and significance, their quality of association and suggestion, to stand for and symbolise the abstractions working in his mind, and, in this concrete and figurative fashion, he will be found, by those who take the pains to follow him, to think coherently and purposefully enough. Its meaning. The images with which we meet in the second book may at first seem strange and bizarre. The winding passages of the underground world, the silver grots, 
the orbed diamond, the forsaken temple, the magic fountains. These may well be called wild and fantastic imaginations, beneath which Keats has so effectively hidden his symbolic purpose that readers, by no means unsympathetic, have been driven to doubt whether it is there at all. Even Sir Sidney Colvin, referring primarily to the description of the magic fountains that kept on changing their form, gives up the riddle and says, This, and much else on the underground journey, seems to be the outcome of pure fancy and daydreaming on the poet's part, without symbolic purpose. Yet one cannot but feel that it is unlikely that Keats would allow himself to wander aimlessly from the point in a poem dealing with a subject that was to him, of all things, most vital and sacred, especially when one bears in mind the fact that it was just through such images that his ideas seemed most naturally to find expression. One need not abandon the hope that, even in the strange and fantastic symbolism of this book, Keats will be found, by those who take the pains to follow him, to think coherently and purposefully enough. The meaning, then, that is suggested as underlying the symbolism of this book is mainly a personal one. Keats is continuing the story of his preparation for the work of a poet. He tells us how he could not put aside the longing that he might, some day, be found worthy of this high calling, however far away such an ideal might seem, and how, by what seemed a happy chance, he was led to enter upon an earnest and thorough study of some of the great classical poets. He tells us how fascinating he found the study, and yet how, at times, he was oppressed by what seemed its deadness and want of relation to life as he knew it. And then we see how he came to recognise a greater beauty and significance in some of the old legends than he had hitherto perceived. And finally, he pictures the renewed assurance that came to him that he would one day reach the goal towards which he was striving. We must now examine the details of the story with a view to ascertaining how far the interpretation here suggested is supported by them. Endymion has found himself unable to return to his former life of healthy activity, as he had told Peona he would do. He cannot shake off the influence of the vision that has called to him again and again with growing clearness. And the interpretation of this part of the story follows naturally upon that which we have already recognised in the first book. When the idea of achieving fame as a poet had once laid hold of the mind of Keats, he could not shake it off. He might, at times, when the ideal seemed too far out of reach, resolve to turn back to medicine and surgery, and make a renewed effort to fit himself in the normal way for this profession. But the call of poetry became more and more insistent, and no effort of will, and no pressure from his guardian, could drive it out of his mind. The Episode of the Butterfly The incident that breaks in upon his mood of depression leads on to the journey underground with which this book is mainly concerned. Endymion is sitting by a shady spring and elbow deep with feverous fingering stems the upbursting cold. A wild rose tree pavilions him in bloom and he doth see a bud which snares his fancy. Lo! but now he plucks it, dips its stalk in the water. How it swells! It buds! 
it flowers beneath his sight, and in the middle there is softly pite a golden butterfly, upon whose wings there must be surely charactered strange things, for with wide eye he wonders and smiles oft. Line 53 Endymion follows this little herald as it flutters away, and in the pursuit his mood of languor is changed into eagerness. It leads him to the side of a fountain pouring out near the mouth of a cavern. As it sips from the stream, it vanishes. But soon afterwards, Endymion hears a voice calling to him, and looking round, he sees the nymph of the fountain, who tells him that it is she who, in the form of the butterfly, has led him to this place, and warns him that he has yet far to travel before he can hope to obtain the object of his desires. Footnote. This point has not always been understood, but it appears to be a necessary inference from the text. All I dare to say is that I pity thee, that on this day I have been thy guide. Book 2, line 121. End footnote. She vanishes, and Endymion is left with a sense of perplexity and disappointment. He watches the moon, now shining brightly, and though he does not recognize her oneness with his divine visitant, his spirit is stirred with an intense longing. He feels that he is almost sailing with her through the dizzy sky. Line 187. And, as his passionate longing grows almost too great to bear, he hears a voice calling to him from the cavern and bidding him descend. Its meaning. The view that is to be taken of the meaning of this episode must depend on the interpretation that is given to the story of the underground wanderings of Endymion, to which it serves as an introduction. This will be considered in its place, but for the moment it may be taken as a working assumption that these wanderings are intended to represent the course of study in classical poetry that Keats carried on for some time. With this as a clue, one is led to recognize that Keats is here depicting an experience of which no other record remains, though we know that he must, at some time, have passed through it. He was not much more than eight years old when he began to attend Mr. Clark's school at Enfield, and how soon he took up the study of Latin we do not know, but we do know that, at some period, probably during the last two years of his school life, classical story and poetry began to exercise a fascination upon him that is not usual in the case of a schoolboy, and we may gather that he is picturing to us his recollection of the occasion when he first felt this fascination. The actual experience, vivid though it may have been in the recollection of Keats, is presented to us in a manner that makes it by no means easy to recognize the meaning of the details. It reminds one of a photograph taken from an aeroplane, which, though concerned with actual, and even familiar, objects, shows them in a way that is difficult to interpret. But, read in the light of the idea stated above, it appears to mean that on some occasion, when Keats was deep in meditation, turning over the pages of some book, possibly L'Empriere's Classical Dictionary, which, as Cowden Clark tells us, he appeared to learn during the latter months of his school life, he lighted upon some legend, or story, that snared his fancy, 
He read it and became interested in it, and turning from the bare outline given in L'Empriere, the bud, to the pages of Ovid, or Virgil, in which it was told at length, with all the beauty of their verse, he found more charm and meaning in it than he had at first recognised. It flowers beneath his sight. He followed it up through the different writers that had touched it, and found the pursuit full of interest and pleasure. It seemed he flew the way, so easy was. Line 69. At length the pursuit came to an end. The immediate interest of the story was exhausted, and he began to realise what it had to tell him with regard to his poetical ambitions. The story transformed itself into a warning. Delightful as he had found it, the little investigation that he had carried out had opened his eyes to the limitations of his own knowledge, and he began to realise that he must wander far in other regions before he could hope to attain to his ideal. He felt discouraged. He had thought, more than once, that he was on the verge of the fulfilment of his hopes. He had encamped to take a fancied city of delight. Line 143 only to meet with disappointment and failure. The verses that he had written could not, even in his own judgment, be called poetry. Yet he could not abandon hope, and, as he dwelt upon the beauty of poetry in itself, the achievement of the poet loomed more and more glorious in his imagination, until there seemed to be nothing else worth living for. And, realising that to become worthy of such achievement he must bury himself in a course of earnest and prolonged study, he resolved to enter upon it forthwith. Oh, for ten years, cried Keats in another place, that I may overwhelm myself in poetry, so I may do the deed that my own soul has to itself decreed. Footnote From Sleep and Poetry, line 96 End footnote the Journey Underground The rest of this book is concerned with Endymion's adventures underground, and it may be noted at the outset, as bearing upon the interpretation that has been suggested, that the region through which he passes is one from which all human life has departed. There are some remains of man's handiwork, of which the shrine, with the image of Diana, is the most striking, but the impression left is that these courts and passages have long been silent and forsaken. They are a fitting symbol of the literature of an age long gone by. There are, near the opening of this part of the story, a few lines which it would be hard to match as a description of classical literature as a whole. Dark nor light the region, nor bright, nor sombre holy, but mingled up, a gleaming melancholy, a dusky empire and its diadems, one faint eternal eventide of gems. Line 221 The imperfect and partial understanding of these old writers, which is all that is possible in these latter days, together with the unfading, clear-cut beauty of numberless passages in them, is suggested here with a skill and sureness of touch that Keats did not often attain to at this period of his work. When Tennyson tried to describe the kind of beauty that he had found in the classical poets, he used the same image. Jewels, five words long, that on the stretched forefinger of all time, sparkle for ever. 
Footnote. The Princess. Canto 2. Line 355. End footnote. The pleasure that Endymion found in exploring this new region. T'was far too strange and wonderful for sadness, sharpening by degrees his appetite to dive into the deepest. Line 219. May be taken as a reminiscence of the delight with which Keats plunged into his classical studies when he had once begun to feel the fascination of them. He was at work, says Cowden Clark, before the first school hour began, and that was at seven o'clock. Almost all the intervening times of recreation were so devoted, and during the afternoon holidays, when all were at play, he would be in the school, almost the only one, at his Latin or French translation. The track that Endymion followed is described in some detail. We hear of a vein of gold, line 226, metal woof like Vulcan's rainbow, line 230, of silver grots or giant range of sapphire columns or fantastic bridge athwart a flood of crystal, line 237. The path leads along a track with all its lines abrupt and angular, line 228, now entering a vast entree where the monstrous roof curves hugely, line 231, now leading through winding passages, line 235, or crossing a ridge that o'er the vast beneath towers like an ocean cliff, line 240, and the description suggests, on the one hand, the qualities that are characteristic of ancient classical poetry, as contrasted with that of the modern romantic school, the severity, the colder, harder kind of beauty, and, on the other, the great variety of interest and outlook to be met with as one passes from one to another of the great writers of Greece and Rome. The Orbed Diamond A little later, Endymion came in sight of an orbed diamond set to fray old darkness from his throne. T'was like the sun uprisen or chaos. Line 245 And the amazement that he felt in looking at it, so great that his bosom grew chilly and numb, Line 243 Reminds us of the feelings attributed to Cortez and his men, who Looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent, upon a peak in Darien, and probably refers to the same experience when Keats first looked into Chapman's Homer, and this interpretation is confirmed by the suggestion that the words carry of a light set to shine in a region that was all dark before. It is at this point, indeed, that Keats gives us a plain intimation of the meaning of the story, for he tells us that the wonders of this region are past the wit of any spirit to tell, but one of those who, when this planet's sphering time doth close, will be its high remembrances. Who they? The mighty ones who have made eternal day for Greece and England. Line 249 The Temple Endymion now came to a temple, so complete and true in sacred custom that he well nigh feared to search it inwards. Line 257 With feelings of awe he approached and looked down sidelong aisles and into niches old. Line 264 
and then began to thread all courts and passages where silence dead roused by his whispering footsteps murmured faint and long he traversed to and fro to acquaint himself with every mystery and awe line two hundred and sixty six it seems likely that in the description of the minute and careful way in which endymion examined this temple keats has embodied his recollections of his own study of virgil's aeneid footnote colvin life of keats page 184 takes the latter part of this description to refer to some other building than the temple in which stands the image of diana but it seems better to regard the whole passage down to line 270 as relating to the same temple the fair shrine beyond which stands the quivered diana is in the chief hall of the temple book one line 298 endymion first sees this through a long pillared vista line 260 so that the temple is not a small building and the other aisles and courts and passages may be naturally taken as forming part of it end footnote cowden clark tells us that he was so fascinated with this epic that before leaving school he had voluntarily translated in writing a considerable portion of it nor did his apprenticeship to mr hammond lessen his enthusiasm for at edmonton he plunged back into his school occupations of reading and translating whenever he could spare the time he finished at this time his prose version of the aeneid and the recollection must have been a pleasant one to have inspired such lines as those italicized above one would have to seek far to find such a perfect description of the sensations aroused as one makes one's way with wonder and admiration through this great poem of days long gone by at length endymion grew wearied and sat down before the moor of a wide outlet to think about what he had seen there when new wonders ceased to float before and thoughts of self came on how crude and sore the journey homeward to habitual self line two hundred and seventy four if one tries to enter into the feelings of keats when he had completed his translation of the aeneid one can well imagine that he had become conscious of a new standard of poetical expression he had begun to realize as he had never done before what a value belonged to the choice of the mot juste he had felt all the charm of the muses often flowering in a lonely word and he realized painfully how far his own attempts fell short of this standard his verses would indeed seem crude his recognition of his own limitations might well make him feel sore his aspirations for poetic fame appeared a mad pursuing of the fog-born elf whose flitting lantern through rude nettle briar cheats us into a swamp into a fire line two hundred and seventy seven but soon another feeling became more prominent he was oppressed by the loneliness of the place and the deadness of his surroundings he longed to see the sky the rivers the flowers and the grass he was cut off from all these things he was in a region from which all life had departed and the work to which he felt himself called could not be accomplished in such a place no exclaimed he why should i tarry here no 
loudly echoed times innumerable. Line 295. For the Romantic poets, great as was their admiration for the true classics, felt that they had to speak out a living message to a living world, and that no mere imitation of the methods of a bygone age could accomplish this. So he returned into the temple, and reaching the shrine of Diana, prayed to her that as she does not waste her loveliness in dismal elements, mind 312, so he may be delivered from the rapacious deep and brought to where he can once more hear the linnet's note, line 322. And in this passionate cry, we may recognise a feeling in the mind of Keats that greatly as these works that he had been studying were to be admired for their perfection of form, their brilliancy of expression, and their variety of interest, yet they belonged to another age, another race of men, and were lacking in fresh and living significance for the world of his day. But, as in answer to the prayer of Endymion, there sprang up through the marble floor of the temple a growth of leaves and flowers, nor in one spot alone the floral pride in a long whispering birth enchanted grew before his footsteps. Line 345 so Keats came to realise that the eternal principles of life might even yet find expression through the seemingly dead pages of these poets of a bygone age. Cheered by this assurance, which would remind him of the occasion when the first revelation of divine beauty was vouchsafed to him, line 554 and following, Endymion started off once more, increasing still in heart and pleasant sense line 351. Before long he caught the sound of music, and he was deeply stirred. It was a hopeful sign, and showed that his ear must now be more finely attuned to the melodies of heaven. For when this same supernatural music had before broken, in smoothest echoes through copse-clad valleys, line 119, it was only the children, the heralds of the coming day, who were given power to hear it. So entranced was he, by the music, that it was only through the leading of a heavenly guide benignant that he passed safely through the thousand mazes, till, at last, with sudden step, he came upon a chamber, myrtle-walled, embowered high, line 388, where lay Adonis, sleeping, guarded by cupids. Venus and Adonis Endymion, though a wanderer from upper day, is welcomed, and is feasted with wine and fruit and manna, while there is told to him the story of the passion of Venus for Adonis, of the fate that befell him, and of the decree by which his death, medicined to a lengthy drowsiness, was changed each summer-time to life. Soon Venus herself comes down, and after speaking words of encouragement to Endymion, carries Adonis away with her. So ends this episode. It represents the fulfilment of the promise of the life that was to be discovered in these old legends. Keats is still trying, by means of images, to symbolise the abstractions working in his mind, but the meaning of the images here is not obscure. He is telling us how, after he had first recognised that there was something more in his old legends than the dead perfection of an obsolete poetry, one of them at least blossomed out richly and filled him with delight. 
and while the revelation lasted while a sense of the living truth embodied in the story was full upon him the world of classic poetry no longer seemed dim and lonely it was full of warmth and light and music and meaning as sir sidney colwyn has remarked to rescue the mind of england from this mode of deadness was part of the work of the poetical revival of eighteen hundred and onwards and keats was the poet who has contributed most to the task it was his gift to make live by imagination whether in few words or in many every ancient fable that came up in his mind he could follow out a classic myth from a mere hint to its recesses and find the human beauty and tenderness that lurk there at length the inspiration passed the earth closed gave a solitary moan and left him once again in twilight lone line 586 endymion was greatly cheered by what he had seen he felt assured of happy times when all he had endured would seem a feather to the mighty prize so with unusual gladness on he hies line 590 and in these words we may take it that keats is recalling the feeling of encouragement and pleasure with which after the revelation that he has pictured for us above he turned again to the study of the classics with a fuller assurance that he would gain from them guidance and inspiration for his poetical work the path that he follows is described by images similar to those in which the earlier part of the underground journey is set before us he passes through caves and palaces of mottled ore gold dome and crystal wall and turquoise floor black polished porticoes of awful shade and at the last a diamond balustrade line 594 and the suggestion as before is that of a great and wonderful beauty but a beauty that is hard and cold and without life such as is usually felt to be the characteristic of the greater part of classical poetry the magic fountains but now endymion comes upon a new marvel the path which he is following brings him just above the silvery heads of a thousand fountains so that he could dash the waters with his spear but at the splash done heedlessly those spouting columns rose sudden a poplar's height and gan to enclose his diamond path with fretwork streaming round alive line six hundred and three endymion dwelt long on the strangeness of the scene and the detail with which it is described suggests that he gave to it the same close attention as he had previously devoted to the temple which he had reached in the earlier part of his wanderings the whole description may at first appear fantastic in the extreme but following the clue that has led us to this point we recognize that keats is telling us how after his study of virgil he went on to make himself thoroughly acquainted with the poems of ovid more especially with the metamorphoses every minute space so the description runs the streams with changed magic interlace sometimes like delicatest lattices covered with crystal vines then weeping trees moving about as in a gentle wind which in a wink to watery gauze refined 
poured into shapes of curtain canopies, spangled, and rich with liquid broideries of flowers, peacocks, swans, and naiads fair. Swifter than lightning went these wonders rare. And then the water, into stubborn streams collecting, mimicked the wrought oaken beams, pillars and frieze, and high fantastic roof of those dusk places in times far aloof cathedrals called. Line 613 Ovid's Metamorphoses It was from Ovid's Metamorphoses, says Colvin, as Englished by that excellent Jacobean translator, George Sandys, that Keats, more than from any other source, made himself familiar with the details of classic fable. Evidences of this are strewn freely over the pages of Endymion. The scene of the sleep of Adonis and the coming of Venus to awake him is drawn from the tenth book of the Metamorphoses. The description of Sibylle, lines 639 to 649, is imitated from a passage in the same book, where Venus is represented as telling to Adonis the story of Atalanta. The pursuit of Arethusa by Alpheus, line 916, comes from the fifth book, and that of Glaucus and Scylla, book three, is given in the thirteenth and twenty-fourth books. This free use of Ovid, added to the emphasis which is laid throughout this passage on the alterations that are taking place in the form and significance of the magic fountains, leaves little room for doubt as to the meaning of the poet. He may have thought that in making use of the expressions changed magic, line 613, and founts protean, line 627, he was giving a sufficiently broad hint of his purpose. Sibylle, bidding farewell to these sights, Endymion passes on, and soon sees the vision of Sibylle, to which allusion has already been made. Sibylle, wife of Cronus and mother of the gods, may be taken to represent the fount and source of all these legends, in which the poet is now beginning to perceive a deeper meaning, and he has this brief glimpse of her shortly before his wanderings in the region of classical poetry are crowned with their great reward. For, at this point, he finds that the diamond path that he has been following ends abruptly in mid-air. In his perplexity, Endymion asks for divine help, and there comes to him a large eagle on which he flings himself and is borne down through unknown things till exhaled asphodel and rose with spicy fannings interbreathed came swelling forth. Line 663 Diana The eagle lands him in the greenest nook of a jasmine bower all bestrown with golden moss. He wanders through verdant cave and cell and feels a swell of sudden exultation. An intense longing for his heavenly love comes upon him. He knows, however, that no passionate striving of spirit will bring her to him, and yielding quietly to the influences by which he feels himself to be surrounded, suddenly he finds that she is with him. Even now he does not realise the full measure of the glory that is his, but the period of their intercourse is more prolonged, more intimate, and more complete than ever it has been before. This is the climax of the second book, and it is evidently intended to set forth, by means of picture and imagery, 
some part of the experience through which the poet passed in the course of his efforts to attain to the understanding of the innermost mysteries of poetry. We may regard him as telling us, in the course of this book, of some incident that awakened his interest in classical poetry, and that led to his plunging into a deep and thorough study of certain parts of it, more especially the Aeneid of Virgil and the Metamorphoses of Ovid, of the curiosity and interest which the study aroused in him, of the discouragement that came upon him, as he reflected that this was the expression of the mind of an age that had long passed away, whose aim, in life and mode of thought, and manner of speech, seemed to have little or no meaning for the men and women of his day, of the wonder and delight which he felt when, as by a revelation, he became aware of a deeper and richer meaning that lay beneath the surface of these old myths and legends, and then how he reached a point where it seemed to him that classical poetry had done for him all that it could do in the way of leading him to the ideal that he was seeking. It was at this time, when all the course of painful striving through which he had gone seemed to have led to no tangible result, that there came to him an inspiration, as from some divine source, which carried him right into the very presence of the spirit of perfect poetry. And this mood of exaltation and attainment lasted longer and was more complete than ever before. And, though he knew, even while the mood was upon him, that it could not endure, but would die away after a time, yet he felt cheered and encouraged, for he knew that he was coming nearer and nearer to the realisation of the full powers, the high ideal, towards which he was striving. This appears to be the meaning, as far as one has been able to trace it, that Keats intended to convey in this book and while we may feel that the climax is told in a manner not worthy of the loftiness of the experience that it is intended to represent, we must, at the same time, recognise that it reveals something of the earnestness and intensity with which Keats pursued his aims and ideals. The pleasure that comes from the exercise of the creative instinct is shared by many. The child, who draws the picture of a cow, or carves his little boat of bark, knows something of it, the man who lays out a garden, or designs a house, shares in it. The writer of verse, that others can only read with a smile, has felt some thrill of pleasure in the making of it. For which of us can hope to enter into the joy of the poet, who has produced a masterpiece able to stir thousands of hearts by its subtle magic? Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. Or, thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. This is the level of attainment, with the rapture that must belong to it, that Keats has attempted to depict for us in this book. Endymion, awaking out of his great experience, finds that he is alone. He feels sad and forlorn, but no longer resentful, as he had been on former occasions when these wonderful visitations had passed. He sat down in a marvellous grotto, and thought over the story of his life, and, coming down to this latest experience, he began to wonder what he still had to endure before he could come to the full realisation of his hopes. As he pondered, he heard a noise, and soon, on either side out gushed, with misty spray, a copious spring, and both together dashed swift, mad, fantastic round the rocks. Line 918 
Alpheus and Arethusa. It was Alpheus in pursuit of Arethusa. She longs to yield, but fears the wrath of Diana, and Endymion, moved with a fellow feeling of pity for their longings unfulfilled, prays to his still unknown goddess to have compassion on them and make them happy. Then, turning, he moved along a sandy path and found that the visions of the earth were gone and fled. He saw the giant sea above his head. Line 1022 The significance of this incident, with which the second book closes, appears to be twofold. It is, in the first place, a fresh illustration of the life and power that may be found in these old stories for those who have sympathy and insight to enter into their spirit. And there is further the suggestion, preparing the way for one aspect of what is to follow in the next book, that Endymion is coming to be less absorbed in his own perplexities and troubles and is learning to look with a feeling of sympathy upon the difficulties of others and this marks an important advance in the process of his training. The Introduction to the Second Book If we now turn to the lines that form the introduction to this book, we find that they bear out the interpretation to which the study of the rest of the book has led us. The essence of them is contained in the first seven lines, and the remainder of the passage is merely expansion and illustration of the one idea stated at the beginning. O sovereign power of love, O grief, O balm, All records, saving thine, Come cool and calm and shadowy Through the mist of past years. For others, good or bad, Hatred and tears have become indolent, But touching thine, one sigh doth echo, One poor sob doth pine, One kiss brings honeydew from buried days. Line 1. And he goes on to say that the tale of the wars around Troy, or of the campaigns of Alexander, has little power to move us, while our souls thrill with responsive sympathy when we hear such stories as those of Troilus and Cressida, or of Imogen. So, it will be remembered, a large part of classical poetry is imaged as cold and lifeless. Its beauty is like that of the diamond or sapphire. But where it enshrines the passion of love, it pulsates with life. Such stories, as those of Venus and Adonis, or of the river lovers, still retain their power to rouse our sympathy. More than the experience of Keats In working out the interpretation of this book, it has been convening to deal with it primarily as a record of the personal experience of Keats. But here, no less than in the first book, it is necessary to bear in mind that the allegory has a wider significance and is intended to represent the process of training which may be regarded as desirable, if not necessary, for anyone who aspires to the name of poet. It is evident that the journey of Endymion suggests a much more extensive study of classical literature than Keats ever had the opportunity of carrying out. He did indeed come to know Homer with as much completeness as the translation of Chapman made possible. He studied Ovid, both with the help of Sandys and in the original text, while, as noted above, he translated the whole of the Aeneid for himself. But beyond this, his knowledge of the classics appears to have been derived from such secondary sources as Tuke's Pantheon, Lomprier's Classical Dictionary, and Spencer's Polymetus.
he was fully conscious however of the disadvantages of the limited range of his own knowledge and accordingly in describing endymion's wanderings through the dusky empire with its diadems he suggests a much wider range of study though the sketch is naturally coloured by reminiscences of what he knew best end of section